0: We've got a few people up in the balcony. This may be a little harder for you. Um, Guys, I need you to clear your desks, put away your books, take out a number two pencil, and uh, get a clean sheet of paper. And all the kids in the room said, oh, no. (laughs) Famous words, huh? We don't like it when there's a test that's coming up. And yet, strangely enough, whether you've graduated school or you're still in the throes of public education, Uh, The Bible is very clear that there is a final exam for every man and woman, boy and girl. And we find it very clearly in Matthew chapter 25 under the passage that we're going to look at here um, today. How many of you like pop quizzes? No chance to prepare. You come in and it's a Monday morning of all things and they hit you with it. What I love about the way that Jesus talks about this is, he talks about it in the scriptures so that we have plenty of time to prepare. Uh, this morning, we come to the end of this sermon series, as you know it, because this is the end of our series on the end of the world, as we know it. As we turn the page next week into Matthew chapter 26, we go into uh, two very intense and very long chapters dealing with the beginning of the crucifixion narratives, talking about what is really the, the penultimate event, that uh, the most important event in uh, Christian history, Christian theology, but here I say that uh, to prepare you for what Jesus is about to say, what he says in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, happens three days before he is arrested. The sands in the hourglass of Jesus' time on earth are dripping very quickly. And so this is one of the last stories that he tells in his public teaching ministry, There are ways that he begins to pull the disciples off to the side to talk to them privately, to prepare them for his his death and his departure. But this is uh, the conclusion of Jesus' public teaching ministry. Over this seven weeks where we have looked at the end of the world as we know it, or as Jesus tells us about it, he's told us to wait and he's told us to be prepared. But here at the very end of this section in Matthew's Gospel, he tells us very clearly how he wants us to wait while, he, while his coming is delayed. And when he tells us how to wait, there is no decoding of signs, there's no Bible code that you need to know, there are no charts that you need to read, but there is an exercise of charity that is incredibly important. You'll find a listening guide in your uh, your bulletin this morning. Uh, three simple points, and we begin in Matthew 25 with verses 31 through 33 in our first point, that Jesus' second coming will be vastly different than His first coming. Jesus' second coming will be vastly different than His first coming. Look at verses 31 through 33 with me. The Bible says this, "...when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another... Just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats he will put on his left. There are a variety of ways in which we could talk about the distinction or the contrast between Jesus' first and his second coming. But Let's just stick with what we see in these verses that we've just read. We are about to celebrate the season of Advent, of Christ's incarnation, and we all like to sing about the swaddling clothes in which the baby is wrapped and laid in a feeding trough. He came in great humility, not as you would expect the King of kings and Lord of lords to come. He came in great humility in His first coming. But in His second coming, it says, when the Son of Man comes in glory. Now, let me just suggest that um, when we shout glory in our worship service, we don't really fully understand what that word means. We, we say it as a religious ex, expression of exuberance, but the word in Hebrew, kabod, which is the word we use for glory, literally means heaviness. That God has, uh, to use a word, he has gravitas. When he walks into the room, everybody stops talking and everybody focuses upon him because he is the most important person in every room that he walks into. The most interesting man in the world has nothing on Jesus. He is the most interesting person in all of creation. But he will come in glory. And it's mentioned very specifically in this passage. In his first coming, Jesus basically came alone. As a baby, born to a a virgin, he came alone. Now we know that there were angels that sang a song to the shepherds. But we see that when he comes again, he comes in glory. And all the angels come with him. He's not coming alone, he's coming accompanied. When he came the first time, he came kind of privately to an individual family and to a particular people. He came to the Jewish nation. But it says when he comes again, that he'll come in glory with all the angels and that he will sit on a throne of glory and all the nations will be gathered to him, not just the Jewish nation. I love to look at maps. I'm, I'm a map, kind of map-of-file, whatever that's called. I enjoy maps. <clears throat> the thing that is interesting is maps change. Maps change. And so I have a globe that I think I got in middle school, and I think all of the countries in the stands aren't in it, because it didn't exist. And so anytime there's a war, or the fall of the Ottoman Empire, or World War One, World War II, the geography changes. So realize that when this was written that all of the nations will be gathered before him. The United States didn't exist. There wasn't even an idea of the United States. And so whatever it is that makes individual people groups, nations or groups, it is literally all of the uh, ethnes. Panta ta ethne. It is all of the ethnics. That's you. That's me. And however many there are, all of them will be included in this gathering, it's not private, it is public. In his first coming, he, he came preaching a message of salvation. But when he comes again, the message of salvation is not to be proclaimed because now is the time of separation. His second coming is the proverbial line in the sand by which you, you there is no more dilly-dallying about what side of the fence you want to be on. It is the time of separation. And he talks about this by use of a parabolic element. This uh, kind of appropriately as we're talking about hermeneutics, the science of interpretation on Wednesday night. This is not properly a parable. Verses 31 through 33 are, but then the rest of it as Jesus talks about judgment and how he's judging people is not a parable. It's actually very realistic. And so he uses parabolic elements of talking about a sheep and a shepherd to talk about what the judgment will be like but suffice it to say, his second coming will be very different than his first coming. <clears throat> In verses 34 through 45, we see our second point, that Jesus' judgment, get this, Jesus' judgment will be based upon people's actions. Ask the question, if Jesus came back today and we move this out of the way, and we put a judge's tribunal right here, would there have been enough evidence this week to convict you of being a Christian? That's the question. Because what we don't realize is that there's a very clear association between what we truly believe in our hearts and what we do. And so this raises a very interesting question. Let's look at this passage, and we'll talk about it in some detail here. Verses 34 through 45. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous, interesting their title changes, the sheep are the righteous, will answer him, Jesus, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say also to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? then he will answer to them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me either. Jesus' judgment will be based upon people's actions. This is a challenge for us because we ask the question immediately, what are these good works and what has happened to salvation by faith? Well, I think there's actually something embedded into the text that is really very helpful for us as we wrestle with this. Because it looks like these people are saved by what they do, not by their faith. And that would be uh, an easy misperception to have about this text. (coughs) Look at verse, oh, what is it, 34. Before Jesus ever says anything about what these sheep have or have not done, in verse 34, it says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. When was their eternity decided? Before they ever did anything. Let that sit in, because some of you probably need to be doing a little bit of this. Scratching the head. It's an amazing thing to think about. That God, before he ever talks about what they did, said, hey, listen, before I congratulate you for serving me well, for being my ambassadors, my representatives upon the earth, Let me just tell you, come on in, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Salvation is a gift that God gives us. As a matter of fact, when we listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, this becomes really clear to us and it becomes a very important key for us understanding this rightly. It says, for you have been saved by grace through faith. That's it. We are saved by faith, through faith. Listen, not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not from works. Not from works. Not what you have done so that you can't boast. Look at me. Look at what committee I served on. Look at whose house I painted. Look at how much money I'm given. Look at all the things that I do. It's not for you to boast. It is not from works. Not from works. But verse 10, we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for... Good works which God prepared ahead of time so that you should walk in them not only has God sovereignly arranged for our salvation he's arranged for our service too in the process of sanctification growing up in Christ is learning how to fill the shoes that God has already created for you not that a beautiful thing to think about? Salvation is by faith. It is through grace, but obviously, okay? Get this in Matthew 25. What we do, the works that we do, are important enough that Jesus can hear speak of them as the basis for our judgment. Is salvation by works? No. But what we do, it, well, I'm saved by faith. That means it doesn't matter how I live or what I do. Baloney. That's a, that is a heresy. That is a deadly teaching. And churches have roles filled with people that have made professions of faith that have never done anything. They believe in saving faith, but they don't believe in serving faith. Those two go together. <clears throat> we grow up into that. And so this is very important for us to understand this, that God planned out not only our faith, but our works. And the Bible says that, and I love the fact that it uses this analogy that we are sheep. The Bible says that we are his sheep. And Jesus says that he's the good shepherd and that his sheep, hear his voice and what Jesus calls his sheep to do is not only to be saved but to serve and a sheep who claims that he has heard the shepherd's voice to be saved but hasn't heard the call to serve has not heard his sheep hear his voice and they respond not only to his call to salvation but his call to service and his call to sanctification as well. So what is a good work? A good work has to spring. It has to blossom from a proper foundation of faith, or it's not a good work. The Bible would say if you do not have faith, whatever you do is not, is not a good work. So <clears throat> um, who can I pick on this morning? Everybody's not looking at me now. <clears throat> so I'll pick on Chris and Kelly, because they're back row Baptists. Okay, and we'll make we'll make Kelly the hero because it's always easier to believe that than Chris is the hero because Kelly's sweet, Chris is not so sweet. Um, let's say Chris and Kelly both do the same good work, and Kelly is doing it because she loves Jesus and it's the right thing to do, not because she's trying to win points with God. So from our appearance, they are doing the exact same thing. They're serving. They're building a Habitat for Humanity house and working side by side. And yet God in his sovereign wisdom would say what Kelly is doing is a good work, what Chris is doing is something else. You get that? That's really important because we always want to justify ourselves and we always want to make ourselves look better. And God examines our heart and he knows why we do what we do. Exact same people, they're married. And like when they celebrate their 50th anniversary, we'll probably say they look like each other, you know, because the longer you're married, it just looks like they fit together as a couple. But yet, while everything on the outside may look the same, God can look at the heart and say, no, no, no. Chris is a Pharisee. Not really. Um, (laughs) Chris is doing, his motivation for doing his works is different. But Kelly is doing this because I have have wooed her heart, and she loves me, and her act of service is that. It's not trying to earn or to win anything. Jesus said, no boasting. No (coughs) boasting. It is by faith. But faith that saves is faith that serves. A second important question is, who in the world are these least brothers? Like, this is the whole crux of the issue. Whatever you have done for the least of these, my brothers, you have done it as unto me. And there are a whole slew of answers related to who the brothers are. So I'll give you an analogy to try to balance out where I'm talking about when you drive on the road, there's a ditch on either side. You want to stay on the road. You don't want to get in the ditch. So the ditch over here is too expansive. The ditch here, who are these brothers who are the least of, least of these? They're all the people he's talking about the people in prison, the sick, the naked, the people who need clothes, need water. It's everybody, everyone who is disadvantaged. That's who these brothers are. There's one really big obstacle to that. Jesus never refers to unbelievers as his brothers. So this is too expansive. Over here is the definition that is too restrictive. It's a little pinhole. And it is, who are Jesus' brothers? It's apostles, pastors, and missionaries. It's people who, when the going gets tough, they're the first people to be persecuted. Those are his brothers. If that answer is too expansive, this one is too restrictive. So what is the answer? Who are his brothers? It is every disciple. Every disciple, every follower of God. And I, I, I think we can prove this from the scriptures very clearly. Number one, brothers always refers to believers. Brothers are believers. Uh, Look at Matthew 12, 46 through 50. You'll see it on the uh, screen here. This is uh, an episode from Jesus' life that happened, oh, you know, 12 chapters ago. It says, while he was speaking to the crowds, suddenly his mother and his brothers were standing outside and they wanted to speak to him. And someone said, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. But Jesus replied to that one and said, Who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that person is my brother and sister and mother. Mic drop. Who's Jesus' brothers? People who obey him. Not people who have their name on church rolls. Because we all know you can have your name on a church roll and never have even a desire to obey. These are disciples. People who are concerned about truly living it out. Acts chapter nine, verse four. Saul is known as a persecutor of the church, and he is locking people up, and he's doing everything that he can to destroy the church. Jesus appears to him on the way to Damascus, and he says to him, uh, Saul falls to the ground, and he hears the sound, uh, hears the sound of a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting my disciples? Now, it's much more inclusive than that. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with the hardships of his brothers. And so when you go through difficulty and you think that no one knows, Acts 9.4, he knows what you're going through. He knows what the church was going through. And he takes opposition to his church as personal opposition to himself. Now, let me be really clear. While I think that What Jesus is referring to here by the least of his brothers is all disciples. That doesn't mean that we don't give a rip about non-Christians. I mean, we're very clear that we're supposed to do good to all people, but especially to the household of faith. The story of the Good Samaritan says that when we see somebody in need, we respond, we do it. The Sermon on the Mount says we're even supposed to love our enemies. And so this doesn't free us from the obligation, it just helps us to interpret exactly what Jesus is saying, how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ is very, very, very important. Listen to 1 John chapter 4. John says something really crazy. He says, All right, guys, we love, our love is because he first loved us. So if anyone says, I love God but hates his brother, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, he sees, can't love God whom he can't see. Love for the brothers, the sisters, our faith family, proves our love for God. So here's what's great. The sheep pass the final exam, not because they're cramming or not because they're even trying to pass the exam. They're just loving the brothers. They're not trying to study for something. They're just loving, and so they pass. The goats don't particularly care for the brothers, and so they don't particularly care for Jesus, and that's why they are judged. It's very important here for us to establish this. Our works do not save us, but they do show that we are saved. Our works do not save, but our works do show. And I want you to notice something really pretty incredible about the works. They are, um, to just kind of call a spade a spade, not great. They're not great works. As a matter of fact, they're really kind of Weensy weensy. They're little. He doesn't say, I was was sick and you healed me. What's he say? He says, I was sick and you took care of me. Every mom in the room knows what that's all about. He doesn't say, I was in prison and you liberated me. He said, I was in prison and you, you visited me. It's amazing. He's not calling for these awesome and amazing things. He's talking about food and water. He's talking about clothing and shelter. He's talking about visitation. What he's doing is something really incredible. These things upon which the sheep are judged to be faithful and the goats are judged to be unfaithful are within the range of every single person in this room. Can you provide a cup of cold water to a person in need? This is yes. You can do it. This is so encouraging because you don't have to preach to millions. You don't have to donate amazing amounts of money. You don't even have to die a martyr's death to do his will. What he's calling you to do is not big miracles, but little ministries. Not big miracles. You can't do those. But you can do little ministries. Here's what I find so fun- kind of wrap my brain around is that these works, these ministries are so little that the righteous are even completely unaware that they've done them in the first place. They weren't counting on them to get in. They just seemed to be glad and spontaneous, humble acts of service. They're honestly surprised. Jesus is like, uh, I was um, sick and you took care of me. I, was, I needed a drink. I needed food. And they're like, Hold on, Jesus, because my grandma's got a picture of you in her house, and I'd have been pretty sure if if I saw you naked, I would have remembered that. You know, if um, you were hungry, if Jesus was hungry, I would have remembered that. If I helped Jesus walk across the street, I would have remembered that. They're honestly surprised. And I love this. They were neither self-conscious about serving him, nor were they self-conscious about their own works. They just did the right thing. They just did the right thing. A way to say that is that their works were so small that the righteous forgot them, and the works were so small that the wicked completely rejected them, neglected them. They just didn't want anything to do with it. And so just as the righteous are not commended for giving millions of dollars or dying a martyr's death or doing uh, amazing miracles... The wicked, similarly, are not condemned for gross immorality. They're not condemned for adultery. They're not condemned for fornication or for embezzlement, but for a simple do-nothing heartlessness that didn't care about the people that were around them. Here's the kicker. Look at verse 40. The king will answer them, I assure you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Look at verse 42. Or I'm sorry, verse 45. Then he will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you didn't do it for me either. He doesn't say our job individually is to eradicate homelessness. To eradicate cancer he doesn't say that we're supposed to deal with these class action things that we take care of everything he says one person and i think he has to make it that demonstrative because we tend to judge people in groups and go oh well, there's nothing i can do to help homelessness yeah but there's something you could do to help a homeless person as long as it exists as an abstract idea, you'll never be motivated to do anything. But if you can look beyond the forest and see the individual tree, you can do something for that tree. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not asking for you to like, get rid of this social problem. I'm asking you to help where you can with an individual. And so before we conclude the rest of our sermon, I'd like for you to hear a testimony of a person whose life was changed because somebody took care of them when they were in a difficult situation. So, Chris, if you would come and share with us, please.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Um, Me and Pastor um, Scott... At lunch the other day, and um, he asked me to drop by this morning and share a short, quick story with you. So um, I'm glad I was able to make it this morning. And I just want to start off and um, tell you that uh, what I'm going to share you about this morning is about just a young guy uh, that lived at Edgeville, South Carolina. And when he was about eight or nine years old, uh, things were going fairly well in his life. Uh, Things were kind of normal, but Then his mother started experiencing some really mental issues, and uh, she was in and out of mental institutions for years and years. Uh, She used to take um, uh, shock therapy, and what that was is that they'd take the person and, I guess, hook them up and shock them in their little brain, and uh, so this young guy seen his mother do that on Saturdays, and she would show back up as a little four-year-old about 11 o'clock, and then mom would kind of start showing back up around 3 or 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon because they really didn't know what to do with mental issues back in those days. And that kind of put an impact on him, and he just really did not understand what was going on. A lot of fear, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt because all the other moms wasn't going off on Saturday morning getting shocked, coming back weird. And so he started wondering about what life was all about. And then when he became a teenager, uh, he started looking around and saying, man, I'm just a little different than everybody else. And he was abused by an older man in the community when he was in his early teens for a whole summer. And the guilt and shame and remorse about it just didn't want to tell anybody about it. So carried it for years and years. And, of course, you know what probably comes next is that you're either going to do two things with pain. You'll either get out of it or you're going to try to treat it with something. And what he did, he started using drugs and alcohol to try to get rid of the pain. Not only did he do that, he started running away from the pain, started moving to Texas and trying to get around other places, trying to just, if I change my environment, maybe things will be better. But nothing changed for him. And then about, when he turned about 23 years old, he'd come back home for a little while. He was old, long-haired, dope-smoking, messed-up guy from Texas. And his mom and dad had divorced at that time. And he was the one of legal age that time, and he had to sign his mother into the mental institution. And he remembered when the patrol car came in, they had to put the white jacket on her, and she drove out of the, they drove her out of the driveway to Bull Street in Columbia, and something broke in him. And he said, man, I just can't do this anymore. Walked in the backyard and said, God, if you're real, you need to let me know, because if you're not, I'm checking out. I'm getting my, in my truck, going back to Texas, and I'm saying I'm forgetting everybody in Edgeville, South Carolina. Well, the story was is that what it felt like oil just poured over the top of his head. He knew something was different. He knew God had touched him, and he felt love he'd never felt before. It was an amazing thing. Next day, he got up, the grass was greener, the sky was bluer, everything had changed in his life. But he really didn't have a discipleship, didn't have anybody there with him. God blessed him over the next few years. He got in business and did real well, was married to a preacher's daughter. And things were going real well, but he forgot what God had done for him in that backyard that, that night. Made some bad decisions in business, and wound up going to prison for about 10 years. Still chasing the same problem that he never dealt with years ago. The shame, the guilt, remorse, and he stepped back into alcohol and drug abuse. But what happened when he went to prison, there was a couple guys that started showing up fairly quickly. One of the guys' name was Charlie. One of the guys' names was Ken. Another guy's name was Jerry. Another fellow's name was Mike. And this guy that was in prison now, that was still the young guy that had been doing these drugs all these years, started hearing some hope. Because he thought, well, my gosh, you got two kids. You got a a divorce in your your bag now. And he said, what are we going to do? God, how are you going to bring me out of this? Well, Charlie always told us when he came to see us in prison, he said, Chris, everything's going to be all because God loves you. And then Mike would start off with songs to give you encouragement and let you know that God was real and God can cleanse us and do away with our sin and our past like we sung about this morning. And the other guys were there to support him with Ken and Jerry. Both of those guys were always there every month. And it built up hope for that man that was in there. And you say, well, where did these guys come from? Here. There was Mike Manus and Charlie Fell and Ken Cope and Jerry Keaton. And those guys are the ones that come looking for me, trying to give me some water and trying to give me some hope when I was incarcerated. And that was over five years ago when they started meeting me though at that time. And what happened because of that gave me the courage to come back out and say, God, I believe you can do something different. And I want to be able to help other men because they helped me. Now, what God has done in my life—I've got a wonderful wife. We met back up after 36 years. We went to prom together. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Uh, so she's my great wife. She's a school teacher. God's blessed us with four great kids that all love us and care about us. And people ask me all the time, "How does your How does your families merge together?" We've been married two years. So I'm still a newlywed, so give me a little slack here, you know. And it's just great. We got 10 grandkids. You know, uh, Donnie Burris was in the service early this morning. And me and him and his brother Billy uh, were just up in West Virginia working on a, a house where the dead got swept away in the flood and died. But I got to go because somebody came and seen me when I was incarcerated. They did what the scripture said, they just didn't hear the scripture, but they came and seen me. Besides that, I went and got my from Liberty University. I'm a certified alcoholic drug abuse counselor now with the Christian Society of uh, Drug and Alcohol Abuse Counselors. And amazing, imagine this. A little messed up kid from Edgeville, South Carolina. Now I'm the men's ministry director at the Fort Mill Church of God. Every Wednesday night we're able to bring guys, and I can tell them, I said, no matter where you're at, no matter what's going on in your life, there's always hope. And the reason it happened was because they came and seen one guy. It just didn't affect me. It affected my ten grandkids. It affected my four kids. It's now affecting other men's lives every Wednesday night that we're able to sit down and do. And talk with them about, let them know that Jesus loves them. Just one is all you have to touch. And it can touch a ripple effect in a whole marriage, a church, and a community. So I'm glad I was able to stop by and share that story with you. Thank you,
0: thank you Chris, for taking time to be with us. It's a Pretty amazing testimony to think about that. I mean, one life turned around for God. And I want you to hear very clearly as we come to a very quick conclusion that um, there's a reason to do this, and it's not for your own individual, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, listen, we all want to hear that. But I want you to hear the way that this passage concludes that reminds us of something that we don't want to be reminded of. Yet if I just left verse 46 out, I would not have fully preached the scriptures this morning. Verse 46 brings us to our third and final point, that people will inherit and I'm using the word inherit specifically because everybody gets what they deserve in the end. People will inherit one of two very different destinies. Look at verse 46. The goats, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. I like to talk about this. As a matter of fact, um, the Roman Catholic Church and Um, other theologians are doing their best to air-condition hell uh, that they can. They're trying to make uh, get-out-of-jail-free cards, and they're trying to do all kinds of things to say that hell is not what Jesus seems to say that it is. But this destiny is talked about in three places in our passage, verse 34, uh, verse 41, and verse 46. And I'll just draw your attention to this very quickly. Both the sheep and the goats have a prepared place for them. We saw that in verse uh, 31 where the Father said, Uh, In verse 34, when the king said, Come, you who are blessed from my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Verse 41 says, Depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The goats go to a place that was not specifically prepared for them, but prepared as the place of punishment for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 46, we are told that it is eternal punishment or eternal life. Some important things for us to think about here, because history ends in either heaven or hell. And we have to keep in mind that Jesus, the Lord of love, speaks about hell more than any other figure in the Bible. The person who, as an act of love, gave his life as a sacrifice for people, has the authority to speak about hell with... um, some moral indignation so what does the bible tell us about hell hell number one is a place of total separation it is a place of total separation listen hell will be well populated but i don't think that you're going to belly up to the bar and have a lot of fellowship with your your fellow inmates uh our, our second point is that hell is a place of bad association And I think that's what makes the separation in hell so bad. There will be people there, but they're not the kind of people that you're going to want to spend time with. They're not the kind of people that you can trust. And and what makes it even worse, hell as a place of total separation is total separation from God. Now some of you are smart enough to go, all right, Orthodox theology isn't God omnipresent? Isn't He everywhere? Yes. It's just you don't want to be a part of God's presence in hell. He's the warden. The devil doesn't reign there. He's an inmate. God's presence is present in hell. There is nowhere you can go to to escape his spirit. It's just not a benevolent spirit that is there. It is his perfect justice that reigns. It's a place of bad association. The devil doesn't rule. This is a place of his punishment as well. Hell is a place of eternal suffering. In verse 46 that we just looked at, it says that the goats will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go away into eternal life. The same word eternal is used of punishment that is used of life. So if you want to make hell a temporary assignment, then so is eternal life. You can't have it any other way. It is eternal punishment and it is eternal life. You can't have one without the other. The reason it is important for us to be involved in good works is not just so that we hear, hey, y'all, come on into the kingdom prepared for you, but that we take people into the kingdom with us. Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. Who shall describe the misery of eternal life? punishment. It is something utterly indescribable and inconceivable. The eternal pain of body, the eternal sting of an accusing conscience, the eternal society of none but the wicked, the devil and his angels, the eternal remembrance of opportunities neglected and Christ despised, the eternal prospect of a weary, hopeless future. All of this is misery indeed. It is enough to make our ears tingle and our blood Run cold. We do good works because they glorify the Father and they are good for us, but they are also good for others. And I conclude with this passage from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, to hear why God has given his grace to people like us. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, offering salvation to all people instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to cleanse us for Himself, a people for His own possession, eager to do good works. That's how it ends. All of these things that He has done, His incarnation, His atonement, His Spirit, His forgiveness, His sanctification has been for us to be a people possessed by Him, eager to do good works. Do you find yourself in your heart wanting to do what Jesus wants you to do. To step out of this fog of self-convenience, to do something that might cost you. There might be a few dollars less in your wallet if you take this message seriously. But to do for others what God has most ultimately done for you by serving you and by bringing to you the gospel. Father, we pray that you allow this word to convict. We so often make church a um, really a spectator sport when the truth is we're all supposed to be on the field. We're all supposed to be deployed for your service and for your glory. And there are so many of us that are just satisfied to know that we're going to heaven and I, you know, who cares about what's going on with everybody else? God, that shows a critical lack of maturity if we're even saved at all. Because we believe that the God who calls us perfects His work in us and calls us to live uh, godly lives. And one of the ways that we live that godly life is by doing for others and finding your glory in that. Not an inconvenience, but your glory. So Father, I, I pray that you help us to make our redemption real not just by the fervor with which we worship in song, but by the way we are willing to pour out our lives as an offering to you in how we serve other people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.